breaking news right now. The historic indictment President's of President former Donald fixer Trump. and lawyer said he and Mr. Trump committed crimes together. Trump. To indict to Washington, D.C., where Georgia is on everyone's mind. It comes after a reported phone call between President Trump and the top election in audio first obtained by the Washington Post, the 46th president of the United States. It was a rigged election. The numbers are correct. Trump cheated and they rigged our presidential election. But we will still win it. This is what the end result is. Donald Trump the former president of the United States, appeared in a Manhattan criminal court for his arraignment, facing 34 counts of falsifying business records. The courtroom was packed with spectators and security personnel, and the tension was high. Trump arrived looking somber and reluctant, and his lawyers had arrived ahead of him. During the arraignment, Trump said only nine words, including not guilty to the indictment. The prosecutors argued that the case involved an illegal conspiracy to undermine the integrity of the 2016 election and that Trump had participated in and orchestrated a catch-and-kill scheme involving payments from 2015 to 2017. Trump's lawyers complained about the unfairness of his treatment, and the judge tried to keep things going, cautioning Trump to refrain from making statements that could incite violence or civil unrest. Despite his commanding presence outside the courtroom, Trump was merely a defendant inside of it, and the arraignment took nearly an hour. The debate over the political and legal strength of the charges raged on outside of it, with Trump's supporters acting as if the arraignment was a proper kickoff to his re-election effort. The trial is scheduled to take place in January 2024 or a few months after, which would put the event smack in the middle of the Republican Party's nominating cycle. However, this is just the beginning of Trump's legal woes. State and local officials in Georgia are closely monitoring the developments, waiting to see if Fulton County District Attorney Fannie T. Willis will file charges related to alleged efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the state's 2020 presidential election results. While 90% of us may have already played judge, jury, and executioner of the former president in the public arena, the legal process will be long and complex. In this podcast, we'll navigate the labyrinthine web of investigations and cases surrounding Donald Trump. So in this episode, we're just examining the significance of Trump's indictment in New York and the potential implications for the ongoing interference investigation in Georgia to gain a comprehensive understanding of the legal jeopardy that Trump faces and the potential impact on our politics. Watch out. You might get what you're after. Since he left the White House, Donald Trump has been besieged by lawsuits and investigations which could make his path to the presidency in 2024 a rocky one. But let's be honest, this is pretty much par for the course for the former real estate mogul. Lawsuits and investigations have been a constant for Trump following him throughout his business and political career. 
One of the most recent and notable is the $250 million lawsuit filed by New York Attorney General Letitia James against Trump and three of his children for allegedly fraudulent practices. In fact, there's an estimated 4,000 cases associated to Trump over his lifetime. Now that he's a private citizen without the backing of the Justice Department, things have only gotten more complicated. As mentioned in the opening, this is the first indictment of a former president that has ever taken place. Now, the legal system can often feel opaque, particularly when it comes to the mechanics of indictments. So let me break it down for you here. For instance, in the investigation that led to this indictment, what most are calling the Manhattan hush money case brought on by Alvin Bragg Jr. after being elected district attorney of New York County in 2021, he took over the case from his predecessor, Cyrus Vance Jr., who had opened a broad criminal inquiry into Trump's business activities while Trump was still president. Now, Bragg may be pursuing charges, but it was ultimately up to the grand jury to decide if an indictment was warranted. A grand jury comprises ordinary citizens tasked with evaluating evidence to determine if a case merits prosecution. These proceedings are conducted in secret without the presence of a judge. In New York, as many as 23 people can sit on a grand jury, and a majority must vote in favor of an indictment for formal charges to be brought. While the grand jury has power to compel testimony and evidence through subpoenas, its role is not to determine guilt or innocence. Instead, a grand jury decides whether there is enough probable cause to warrant criminal charges against the defendant. Now, it's important to note that being indicted is separate from being charged. There are legal terms that describe different stages in the criminal justice process. An indictment is a formal accusation made by a grand jury that someone has committed a crime. When an indictment is issued, it serves as the official charging document. On the other hand, being charged is a less formal process that can occur at various stages in the criminal justice process. A person can be charged with a crime by a police officer or a prosecutor. When someone is charged with a crime, it means that the government has formally accused them of breaking the law. In summary, being indicted is more of a formal process that involves a grand jury reviewing the evidence and issuing an official accusation of a crime, while being charged is a more general term that can refer to any stage in which the government accuses someone of a crime. Listen, I know that dealing with one fruitless Trump scandal after another has been enough to bore wrinkles into your forehead and keep you refilling that Xanax script, but let's take a trip down memory lane, shall we? To a simpler time before Trump was a political cult. A time before Elon Musk was a household name, and Instagram was just a twinkle in some tech genius's eye. It was 2006, and the world was a different place. We were still reeling from Bush's disastrous Iraq war with over 2,500 American troops killed by the end of the year. And the housing market silently began showing signs of trouble with rising foreclosures and declining home values. But amidst all of that, there was Donald Trump, a self-proclaimed big-shot real estate developer and businessman in New York who was trying to make a comeback as the host of a reality TV show called The Apprentice. And boy, did he love ladies in the limelight. Back in the day, this was nothing but your typical sleazy hookup. A washed-up TV hack dangles the prospect of stardom in front of a porn starlet who's half his age, lures her into a hotel room after a charity golf game, 
and things happen. Hubba, hubba. But fast forward to now, and that steamy one-night stand. Probably more like 90 seconds. I'd wager the under on that one, Doc. I agree. Has snowballed into a seismic event. The first ever indictment of a former U.S. president. Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump's raunchy rendezvous back in 2006 has triggered a chain of events that could go down in history as the ultimate political soap opera. Trump had been making long-shot presidential runs since 2000, and they were nothing but elaborate publicity stunts. In 2011, he found a new angle, peddling conspiracy theories that Barack Obama was born outside of the United States. Those seem like the good old days now. Back in the days when I was young, I'm not a kid anymore. Meanwhile, Stormy Daniels was still steaming about how Trump used his reality TV show to lure her into a hotel room for a night of passion. Quiet, quiet, quiet. I'm going to come. He was passionate for one of them. So, Miss Daniels decided to make some cash and went to an agent to see if she could sell the story of their affair. She ended up making a deal with Life and Style magazine for $15,000, but not before telling the reporter that she believed Trump's promise to make her a contestant on his show was a total lie. Asked if Trump used his celebrity as a ploy to sleep with her, Miss Daniels said, yeah, and I guess it worked. But when the magazine contacted the Trump Organization for comment, Michael Cohen, Trump's so-called fixer, returned the call. Cohen had become the go-to guy for all of Trump's thorny problems, and he was livid about the story. After all, the alleged affair occurred while Trump's wife, Melania, had just had their son, Barron. So he threatened to sue the magazine, and the magazine chickened out, and Ms. Daniels didn't get paid a dime. Fast forward to 2015, Trump's sniffing around the political waters again and decides to run for president, this time as a Republican. And what's a presidential campaign without a little help from friends? That's where David Pecker, the publisher of the National Enquirer, comes in. A longtime pal of Trump's, Pecker promises to publish only positive stories about Donnie Boy and negative ones about his opponents. Pecker and Trump's other lackey, Cohen, even start practicing catch and kill. This is where they find and suppress any stories that might hurt Trump's chances. In spring 2016, Daniels attempted through her agent to sell her story again, this time for more than 200000 but the publications she approached all passed, including the Inquirer. At the same time, Karen McDougal was a Playmate of the Year back in 1998. Karen's career was starting to dry up, so she thought, hey, why not cash in on my tryst with Trump back in 2006? That was a good year for the Don. I mean, fiscally, of course. She hired the same lawyer as Stormy Daniels, who took her story to the Inquirer's editor, Dylan Howard. But the Inquirer didn't do jack until Karen was about to spill to ABC News. That's when they coughed up $150,000 to get exclusive rights to their story, promising to put her on two magazine covers and all that jazz just so they could keep her quiet. In a deal to avoid federal prosecution, American Media, the parent company of the Inquirer, would later admit that the principal purpose of the agreement was to suppress McDougal's story, which the company had no intention of publishing. Meanwhile, Stormy is still trying to sell her story with no luck. But in early October, things finally started to get turned around. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. 
I can do anything. That's when the Axis Hollywood tape dropped, and Pecker and Davidson texted each other about how it could hurt Trump's campaign. Daniel's agent contacted Pecker and sent over a pitch for her client's story. The Inquirer execs informed Cohen, and he asked Pecker for help containing the story. At first, Pecker tried to haggle over the price, but ultimately he turned down the $120,000 offer to buy the story outright. He did, however, agree to help Cohen and Trump in their efforts to keep Daniels quiet. Cohen negotiated a deal with Davidson to pay Daniels $130,000 in exchange for her silence. Cohen drew up an NDA with fake names and signed on Trump's behalf, and Daniels signed her copy on the trunk of a car near a porn set in Calabasas. Classy. It's a classy move. But Cohen dragged his feet on actually paying Daniels, claiming he was trying to figure out how to get the money while Trump was busy campaigning. Eventually, Daniels got fed up and canceled the deal, which prompted Pecker to text Cohen, warning him of the potential fallout if she went public. So Cohen caved and paid Daniels out of his own pocket, transferring the money from his home equity line of credit to a shell company in Delaware and then wiring it to Davidson. Daniels signed a new hush money agreement, they notarized it at the UPS store, and everyone went their separate ways. Until Trump won the election, that is. Once he was in the White House, he reimbursed Cohen for the hush money payments to Daniels. At first, Pecker tried to haggle over the price, but ultimately turned down the $120,000 offer to buy the story outright. He did, however, agree to help Cohen and Trump in their efforts to keep Daniels quiet. Now, Trump and his representative's story about hush money payments to Stormy Daniels began to change in April 2018 as evidence linking him emerged. Initially, Trump admitted that his lawyer, Michael Cohen, represented him but claimed that there were no campaign funds involved. Later, Trump's new lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, claimed that Trump repaid the payment himself, and Trump confirmed this on Twitter. However, Trump maintained that the payments did not violate campaign finance laws as he paid them himself and not from his campaign. Another key figure was former CFO of the Trump Organization, Alan Weiselberg. He was a key figure in the company's financial operations. According to Michael Cohen's 2019 testimony before Congress, Weiselberg was responsible for determining how to structure the reimbursement for Stormy Daniels' payment which was paid out over a 12-month period to make it appear like a retainer. Cohen was sentenced to three years in prison for his involvement, while Pecker cooperated with investigators and received immunity. Weiselberg was granted limited immunity by federal prosecutors in exchange for his testimony in the investigation of the payments. However, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office filed separate charges against Weiselberg for failing to pay taxes on various job perks provided by the Trump Organization, including a rent-free apartment and a luxury car. He ultimately pleaded guilty to the charges and is currently serving a short sentence which is set to end sometime in April. Although federal prosecutors did not name Trump in their filing against Cohen, he was believed to be individual one. So that's the supposed story behind it. But while the indictment was focused on Trump's payments to Michael Cohen and his involvement in the Stormy Daniels scandal, the statement of facts presented by prosecutors sheds light on the catch-and-kill scheme allegedly undertaken by Trump and former American Media Inc. CEO David Pecker. To take this a step further, the National Enquirer 
which is owned by American Media Inc., was said to have bought exclusive rights to these damaging stories about Trump and then suppressing them, thereby preventing negative news from leaking during the presidential campaign. New York prosecutor Alvin Bragg hinted at several legal strategies that could be used against Trump. Bragg mentioned a New York state election law that prohibits people from conspiring to illegally influence an election. But it's unclear how this law would affect a federal candidate since federal candidates are governed by federal laws that usually supersede state laws. Bragg also noted that Cohen's payment of $130,000 to Daniels exceeded the federal campaign contribution cap. But it's uncertain whether Bragg would have jurisdiction over a federal crime. In addition, prosecutors are arguing that because of Cohen's reimbursement by the Trump organization itself, Trump would also be part of a conspiracy to deceive tax authorities, since this is technically a personal payment and not something that would be tax deductible to a business. This third potential legal strategy presents another avenue for Trump's lawyers to try to challenge the charges or have them reduced to a misdemeanor. All in all, there are several avenues for Trump's legal team to poke holes in the case against him. But the statement of facts presented by prosecutors indicates a long-term plot to suppress damaging stories about Trump. It remains to be seen how this case will play out in the courts. But one thing is clear, the legal battle is far from over. And this case will have far-reaching implications for U.S. politics both now and in the future. Georgia. Georgia. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. Now, between November 2020 and January 2021, Trump decided to go all in on trying to overturn the results of a presidential election that pretty much all the courts and governmental agencies agreed was free and fair. You know, unless you were Donald Trump or insane, crybaby, or someone who doesn't understand how counting works. The phone call is what everyone remembers, but the convoluted saga of Donald J. Trump's attempt to overturn the Georgia election started when Trump prematurely claimed victory in the state, even before vote counting had concluded. As the votes trickled in, Americans waited days to learn the outcome of the 2020 election in Georgia, as it was clear that this battleground state would prove crucial for deciding the results. Joe Biden ultimately triumphed with a narrow 11,779-vote margin, this despite Republicans controlling Georgia's governor's mansion, the legislature, and both U.S. Senate seats. This result was largely due to a shift in political trends, with an influx of educated and diverse voters in the Atlanta suburbs providing enough support for Democrats. Trump's former campaign manager, Bill Stepien, had even predicted this red mirage scenario weeks before the election, where pre-election day votes heavily favored Trump, while mail-in and early in-person ballots leaned towards Biden. In the end, this red mirage determined the outcome of the presidential election in Georgia. Stepien, who had worked for many campaigns in the past, 
felt that there was a dishonesty to the way that Trump and Giuliani and others were trying to sway the election and told the January 6th committee just as much. I've spanned, you know, political ideologies from Trump to McCain to Bush uh, to Christie, you know, and, you know, I can work under a, a lot of circumstances for a lot of varied, um, you know, candidates and politicians. And, and I think along the way, I've built up a pretty good, I hope, a, a good reputation for being honest and, and professional. And I, I didn't think what was happening was necessarily honest or professional at that point in time. So that, that led to me stepping away. Former Fox News politics editor Chris Steyerwalt described the phenomenon of a red mirage in his testimony before the January 6th committee. He explained that in recent decades, Democrats have tended to favor voting by mail or absentee, while Republicans have preferred to vote on Election Day. Thus, when votes are counted on Election Day first, it looks like the Republicans have a lead. But it's not really a lead. This quirk in the election system had never been exploited before, Steyerwalt went on to add. But the Trump campaign made it clear that they would use it to their advantage. With this red mirage in play, the results of any election may be uncertain right up until all the votes are counted. In November 2020, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced that a discretionary hand recount would be conducted by election workers of the 4.9 million-plus ballots cast, citing Biden's thin lead over Trump. All ballots cast in Georgia were counted three times, first through scan tabulation, second through a 100% hand audit of the ballots, and third through a scanner recount. Raffensperger testified before Congress that all three counts showed President Trump came up short. Furthermore, it was revealed that Georgia counties had rejected a total of 2011 mail-in ballots over the 1.3 million votes cast due to signature match issues. Trump's national electoral prospects were bleak, with Trump's senior campaign aides Jason Miller and Bill Stepien both stating that Trump was going to lose the election. On November 19th, the Associated Press declared Joe Biden as the winner of Georgia's presidential election with 49.51% of the vote compared to Trump's 49.25%. On a side note, I always love that all the states are winner take all and we have the Electoral College so that it's possible for the person with less votes nationwide can win the presidency. Anyway, back on topic. The following day, Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Governor Brian Kemp certified the election results. This marked the end of the election process and solidified Biden's victory, giving him a total of 306 electoral college votes, surpassing Trump's 232 votes and actually matching Trump's own victory margin in 2016. Trump and his allies launched a coordinated effort to overturn the certification of Georgia's election results. Documents suggest that this was not a spontaneous reaction, but part of an ongoing election integrity working group established months before the election. With slim chances for victory, Trump's lawyers asked outside attorney John Eastman to write a plan of action just before Christmas. This included a memorandum proposing that Vice President Mike Pence refuse to count electoral college votes from contested states during the joint session of Congress. A second memo expanded on this, listing various actions by state officials which had allegedly violated election rules. 
the ultimate aim was to keep Trump in office via alternative electors. While the scheme was being put in place, Trump and his allies launched a legal and public relations campaign to challenge the results in key battleground states. Trump claimed victory in Georgia before all lawful votes were counted and filed a lawsuit alleging that absentee ballots had been improperly processed. The court quickly dismissed the case for lack of evidence. Trump continued to spread false claims about missing military ballots and alleged fraud, and he and his allies attacked Georgia's Republican Secretary of State and Governor. Trump even fired the director of the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency for calling the election, quote, the most secure in American history. Republican lawmakers in Georgia also called for the resignation of the secretary and filed baseless lawsuits seeking to exclude legally cast votes. Lindsey Graham, then the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, even pressured the secretary of state to disqualify thousands of legally cast mail-in ballots. After Georgia's election results were formally certified on November 20th, Trump's legal team prompted a new wave of lawsuits, which they actually chose to dismiss voluntarily when their claims were debunked. However, Trump and his allies increased pressure tactics. Trump's legal team, including Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, also appeared before Georgia's Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on December 3rd to push legislatures to appoint alternative electors. John Eastman, who introduced himself as a professor of constitutional law while conveniently omitting that he was a Trump attorney, also testified and echoed Giuliani and Ellis's call to appoint alternate electors. The Trump team's post-election legal and political pressure campaign in Georgia played almost no role in the state's vote tally. But congressional reporting and testimony suggest that the president and his allies had one clear goal ensuring his own slate of electors would be ratified by the governor. His campaign team had wrote memos outlining their strategy for this, and emails between lawyers on the team revealed their plan to organize these alternative electors in the swing states Trump had lost. In one email, an Arizona lawyer termed them fake votes before quickly amending that to alternative votes in upcoming emails. Clearly, Trump's team was working hard to be successful in Georgia. To justify this plan, another Trump lawyer, Kenneth Chesbro, pointed to an odd episode in American history. A quarrel that took place in Hawaii during the 1960 presidential race between Senator John F. Kennedy and Vice President Richard M. Nixon. At the time, Hawaii was a newly minted state, and its election results were being challenged by Nixon's campaign. As a result, both the Republican and Democratic parties submitted competing slates of electors to Congress. Eventually, that dispute was resolved in favor of the Democratic slate, but Chesbro and others seized on the episode as a precedent for what they were trying to do in 2020. In emails and other documents obtained by the New York Times, Chesbro and his allies argued that state legislatures had the power to appoint electors as they saw fit, regardless of who won the popular vote. The argument was dubious at best and outright false at worst. Chesbro and his cohorts pushed forward with their plan. The plan ultimately failed, but not before it had caused significant damage to American democracy. 
It was one of the key factors in the events leading up to January 6th, when a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the election results. And it has become a major focus of the investigations by state and federal authorities who are trying to determine whether anyone involved in the scheme committed crimes. As the January 6th certification approached and Biden's victory loomed, Trump made a last-ditch effort to sway the outcome. On January 2nd, he called the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and both threatened and begged him, saying, I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. Which conveniently happened to be the number of ballots he would need to win the swing state. Now, recently, according to the Washington Post, a study commissioned by the Trump team contradicted Trump's denial of the legitimate election win by his opponent. Trump's claim that thousands of ballots came from dead people was refuted by his own study, which was dated one day before his call to Georgia's Secretary of State urging him to find enough votes. In that call, Trump insisted dead people had voted. So dead people voted. And I think uh, the, the number is in the pro uh, close to 5,000 people. But the actual number was only two. Raffensperger, a Republican, fact-checked the president in real time. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Two people that were dead that voted. Not only did the Trump commissioned report refute Trump's claims of widespread voter fraud in Georgia, it also refuted those claims in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada. It was this phone call that prompted the criminal investigation, and a special grand jury, which consisted of 26 members, spent eight whole months investigating the case, looking for potential crimes like solicitation of election fraud, making false statements to government officials and racketeering, among other things. You may also notice there I said special grand jury. In Georgia, a special grand jury is explicitly formed to investigate alleged violations of state laws, and it differs from a regular grand jury in several ways. A regular grand jury is seated for an unlimited duration of one term of court, while a special grand jury has no set term and focuses on a single topic. A special grand jury can subpoena the target of an investigation to appear before it and can produce a report on its findings, but it cannot issue an indictment. Special grand juries are typically used for cases that require extensive investigations, such as public corruption. To impanel a special grand jury, an elected public official in a county or municipality can request it from the chief judge who then submits it to a vote by other judges. If approved, the special grand jury is made up of 16 to 23 people summoned from the county master jury list. A special grand jury can compel evidence, subpoena witnesses, and inspect records and documents related to the subject. The special grand jury issues a final report and recommendations, but it's up to the district attorney to decide whether to pursue an indictment. The special grand jury impaneled in Georgia to investigate potential election-related crimes in the 2020 general election has completed its work and recommended action. And I'm a victim, I will tell you. I'm a victim. Think of it. The report includes a roster of who should be indicted and for what. But again, it's up to the district attorney to decide whether to pursue an indictment. 
If the district attorney decides to seek an indictment, the case must be presented to a regular grand jury. Now, the allegations here are serious. So serious, in fact, that if indicted and convicted, people are facing prison sentences, according to Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, who took on the case. Trump took the moment to predictably attack Willis as a young, ambitious, radical left Democrat who is presiding over one of the most crime-ridden and corrupt places. Ah, yes, the classic, I'm not the criminal, you're the criminal defense. Well, the grand jury was dissolved earlier this year after filing a final report, which has remained sealed. To secure a criminal conviction, prosecutors would ultimately need to prove beyond reasonable doubt that those involved knew their actions were fraudulent. As the legal and political battles surrounding Donald Trump's potential indictment continue, one question looms large. What does this mean for his 2024 presidential campaign? According to the 14th Amendment, individuals who participate in an insurrection against the country lose their ability to hold office. Congress could potentially enforce this provision. However, in terms of meeting the constitutional criteria for eligibility to run for president, the former president satisfies them. He's over 35, he's been a resident for the required amount of time, and is a citizen. However, it's worth considering the logistical challenges that may arise for a presidential candidate attending the trial. If the former president is called as a witness, it could affect his ability to travel and campaign around the country. The trial process itself may be time-consuming and may require a significant amount of attention and resources which could impact his campaign activities. As the dust settles on the Trump indictment, the main issue at play here is the political implications rather than the legal ones. Donald Trump's constant norm-breaking and divisive rhetoric have pushed the country to the brink time and time again, and now the prosecution of the 45th president threatens to throw the nation into even more turmoil. The potential consequences of this legal battle are enormous because Trump's attempts to politicize the situation to his advantage will only serve to further polarize an already deeply divided electorate and could even impact the outcome of the next presidential election. And beyond the immediate political fallout, the indictment poses a significant challenge to the American system of justice itself. This latest development is just another stunning barrier shattered by a president who has repeatedly flouted the norms of American politics. After a term marked by historic impeachments, false claims of election fraud, and a violent insurrection by his supporters, it seems that a new national nightmare may be on the horizon. The future of the country is uncertain, but one thing is clear. The road ahead is perilous, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Because the constant politicization of everything in our society has had a cost. Not only does it threaten to undermine the integrity of the legal system and the rule of law, creating a perception of bias and eroding public trust in the justice system, it creates an escalation of partisan tensions, further dividing our already polarized country. We're already so distracted from critical issues and focusing on culture war bullshit which has had long-term consequences for the functioning of our democracy. The legal system needs room to operate independently and impartially. It's time for the legal process to proceed without interference, and unfortunately, it's going to be up to the public to take the lead and show the media and the politicians how to do that.
I want to thank everybody for listening. I really tried to keep this as concise, but also point out the the facts that I thought everybody should listen to, and I know we're all tired of hearing about this, so I tried to make it as as little about opinions and the cult of personality that Donald Trump has morphed into, and I don't even like talking about him that much because he just takes the oxygen out of the room. And all this media coverage just steers us away from so many important things that are going on. But this is history, and this is an important case. Um, I just happen to think the Georgia case is probably the more important one as far as dealing with election fraud. Uh, but I might do something with the um, I might do something with the Smith Council case that focuses on the Mar-a-Lago documents and the investigation into election fraud in all the states. But for now, I hope we just got something out of this. And thanks for taking some time out with me.